0: Welcome to Monster Porn, weird fiction and horror podcast. The podcast that normally opens with a dark joke. So, you know, here's my dating life. Today's story is Red for Ribs, Brown for Brisket by Matt Cummins. happy birthday.
1: It is not my birthday.
0: I wasn't talking to you. Why would I care when you were born? Uh... I was talking to our baby.
1: Oh, do you purposely think of the most unfortunate way to word things before you speak, or does it come naturally?
0: It's a little bit of both, if I'm honest. Yes, Monster Porn Podcast turns a year old with this episode. Can you believe we've made it a whole year?
1: Ah, not really. I kind of figured that somebody would have stopped us by now.
0: No kidding. Really goes to show the moral collapse of Western civilization, doesn't it? They really could have stopped us that one time we had a genocide barbecue, or that time God told us about butt sex. But this is exciting. We've got something fun to celebrate a year of monster porn, which we'll reveal in just a moment. Not that I like or support the having of fun. Of course. Do we have some new reviews? Indeed we do. Mason Jar 05353, I was reading that out of the corner of my eye, (laughs) 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 says, this is a great podcast. The recurring characters slash hosts are fun and the stories are really good. Thank you, Mason Jar 05353. Dr. What 7U says, Brett is sexy AF. Matt is also there.
1: I'll take it. I guess. Well, it's not a lie. You are also here. That is technically true. Anyway, thank you for the support. If you could please remember to subscribe, that would be fantastic. I listen to tons of podcasts regularly, and I often forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I make myself do it now, but for a while, I was like most people in that respect. We're all so busy that those small actions seem daunting, but after I've gone ahead and did it, I think, wow, that took no time at all. And I feel good for having helped support creative content that I enjoy. So if you could take a little time, I promise it won't be much. I wouldn't even ask if it was to hit subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review, especially if you're using the iTunes app. We would be forever grateful. It truly means a lot every time that we get positive feedback. In the present, that is what we're doing it for. You, our listeners.
0: Yes, indeed. Thank you for the continued support. And if you want to go a step beyond just leaving a rating and review, if you want a shout out to the world, I love monster porn, then check out our merch at teespring.com stores slash monster porn. We have tons of new shirts and stickers up on the store, and not all of them have the word porn on it.
1: But if you do want to wear your monster porn clothing out loud, then we have a challenge for you.
0: Yes, we do. And we're calling it the Summer of Sin. But it isn't really sin, is it? that is between the lord and your wicked depraved hearts this challenge will be running all summer it will give you time to get mp merch of your choosing and find the perfect location the challenge is to take a selfie with mp merch on full display in a totally inappropriate location for example taking a selfie while at church or mass wearing a monster porn shirt the location is up to you and please be creative you can use the discount code summer sin for 10 percent off your order to get you started on the challenge, the winner will receive two free shirts. You can send your submissions to our main email, info at monsterpornpodcast.com, or share it with us on social
1: media. Tag us to make sure we see it. Help us celebrate Monster Porn's first birthday with the Summer of Sin, because you know your mom will. Alright, onto the show. <laughs> Are you a lonely gal
0: looking for a nice guy to warm those cool winter nights? Perhaps you're tired of finding yourself at dinner by yourself, watching the lovely couple hold hands and kiss lightly over the candlelight. Maybe you've never found a fulfilling ritual for conjuring the aunts of Allah Ture to please the great horned lizard. Is this guy serious? Well then you are in the right place, ladies. Gents and deities. Welcome to the Monster Porn, Weird Fiction, and Horror Podcast Dating Show, The Podcast. And I'm your host slash Bachelor of Horror, Brett.
2: Oh, that is, a, that is a mouthful.
0: That's what your Mother Earth said. We'll have two rounds. In the first round, we'll have three lucky bachelors.
1: Dude, I'm not a bachelor. Is this why you asked me to wear a suit? If you're trying to get ladies on here so that you can meet them, why do I have to wear the suit?
0: <clears throat> Bachelor number three, don't interrupt. The winner of the first round will go up against the previous winners.
1: I don't see anyone being a winner here. Ow! Damn it, that stings. Is my is my seat electrified? Oh, oh,
3: oh, oh yeah! Oh, now we're getting somewhere.
1: Shock me good,
3: baldy. Oh, and
0: call me Suey. Uh. Maybe we should just move on to our bachelorette. Ladies, or entities, please come out here.
3: Ah. Uh. Oh.
0: Uh. Yeah. Our bachelorette that? is Miss Dracul of, let's see, it says the Shadows of Carpathia. Say hello to our bachelors.
3: Hello. I can spell fear
0: and bacon. Okay, on to the questions. Let's start with bachelor number two. Fire away, uh, miss? Bachelor number two, what would be
3: your idea of the romance?
2: That that is simply a great question. and I, I will try to give it a worthy answer. First of all, I'd like to take you out for a long walk on the beach at early sunset. Now, I wouldn't want to get ahead.
0: Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, shit. He said it. Bad pig. Oh, hell oh, 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 yeah.
2: Do it again. A- and then I take you out for a nice dinner. Now, now I'm a big fan of the Olive Garden. That soup and salad just goes a long way on a budget. And it was great when I was on the road. Wait. Wait. Why? Why was I ever on the road? Oh, God.
0: Next. Next. Bachelor number three. Me? Dude, I'm married. Well, that's not a very good answer. Let's hear from the pig then. Oh
3: uh,
1: yeah. I'll take you places you've never been. Uh, uh, uh girl? i uh, no, no, I've met that. That's that's Vlad the Impaler. Does that sound like a woman's name to you? The impaler? There is only one way out of this.
0: Matt, why did you just break your chair? Oh God! Yes, child. Oh, s- sorry, God. I just, I kind of like butt dialed you, I guess. Matt, is that a steak? Matt, no.
1: Oh, oh, oh! Ouch! Do you, you missed. But a lady knows when she is not wanted. I will be back to return this misdeed upon you tenfold. Had the lanky bald man who served as the hotel's night audit not been busy coordinating a nuclear launch against China on his cell phone and listening to MC Squeezy with his earbuds in, he may have seen the woman's face press against the window that looked over the large atrium of the hotel from room 223. Instead, JJ was busy bopping and playing nuclear devastation as a woman pressed against the glass of the hotel's atrium-facing window. The woman, well, girl if you really got down to it, She'd only just graduated high school the year before, was trying to scream, but only a laryngetic hiss wheezed out. There were large red and purple fingerprints around her throat. The door to the hallway where the room could be accessed opened behind her, and she fell forward onto the floor and laid still behind the large king-sized bed. A mountain of a man stood in the doorway looking toward the bed and breathing heavily. Ashley waited, pressing her hand over her mouth, and then exhaled as he went back out into the hallway. J.J. looked up, and thought for a moment he'd seen the curtain to room 223 move, not that he could tell which room was which from the windows facing into the atrium. He looked, and considered listening for a moment, but then he went back to his game instead. Ashley waited, choking down raspy sobs and listening. It was quiet, and he may have gone to one of the next rooms. If so, she had her chance. She went to the door, which the man had left ajar, and she peeked out, and she could see the end of the hallway, and the way was clear. She threw the door open and ran as hard as she could, limping on a twisted ankle. Her nose, which had been broken when the man tried to club her, and she had fallen, let loose, and began to bleed. But she ran on. She ran down the stairs. The same stairs where minutes before the man had chased her up, and as he'd caught her by the legs, she'd twisted her ankle, but managed to kick her way free. Now she passed in the other direction, thinking how she'd done nothing more than come to get her purse. Life wasn't supposed to end when you came back to work to get your purse. She made it down the stairs, and the closer to the corner she came, the harder she ran. As she made the corner, she would have to go 20 or so feet, and then she would be in the atrium. If she couldn't scream, she would begin breaking the water glasses that were set out on the tables as she made her way to the hostess station to use the phone. Her cell phone was in her car, which was running out in the parking lot. If she had to, she would try to make it to her car, but there had to be someone in the hotel who could help her. It's just my purse, she thought. She had left her purse in the manager's office where the employees were allowed to put things. When she left the hotel, she decided to order a pizza and then realized she didn't have her purse or wallet, so she drove back to the hotel. Except instead of going into the banquet hallway she found herself being chased by a large man who had stepped out from behind the trash cans. She had seen him once, during one of her first shifts, talking to the food and beverage director guy, but she didn't know his name. He had caught her at the entrance to the maintenance shop and had taken her by the throat. He was big and fat, with enormous hands and strength she would not have expected. Ashley was not exactly going to win any fitness awards, and the pooch she had in high school had turned into a grown woman's belly. She hadn't been able to bring herself to get on a scale in over a year, but at 5 feet 4 inches tall, she thought that 175 pounds would be in the ballpark. The man nearly lifted her off the ground. As stars flickered over her vision and the world grew black, she threw all of her strength into bringing up her right knee. She drove it into the man's groin. He groaned, and his grip loosened enough for her to pull free. She turned toward the atrium, where she'd surely run into someone but he caught her leg and she fell toward the door by the stairs instead. She rounded the corner, blood dripping on the carpet. She tried to shout and her voice was coming back to her slightly. Help! Help! Help me! She rasped into the quiet of the hotel. Surely J.J. had to have heard her. But he'd been doing something and... and, oh, Oh God, she thought. He had his headphones in. He wouldn't hear her. Where was the night security guy, she wondered, but she thought she knew. She'd only been working at the hotel for a few weeks, but she'd heard about the maintenance guys and the security guy going up onto the roof at nights to smoke. She was just breaking into the atrium when from her left, the man charged from the dark doorway of a small conference room. He fell on her and pinned her against the small rock wall. She bent awkwardly under his immense weight, His hand found her mouth. She bit, but only managed to make it easier for him to cover her attempts to scream. He bent backward, and with his left arm around her waist, he picked her up off the ground. Then he fell forward again, shoving her head at a rock where it struck with a sickening thwack. JJ paused again, pulled out his earbuds, then, after a moment, shrugged and went back to his game. Damn it, he mumbled, into the eerily quiet hotel. China had won. Warren walked through the strip curtains and into the banquet hallway. He clocked in, not that he needed to anymore, but old habits were like gum on the bottom of your shoe. They followed you everywhere, and you hardly notice. He'd only just become the manager of the banquet department a few weeks previous. The machine rejected the last four of his social, which meant it was official now. He'd become one of them, part of what his stoner friend Mathis would call the man. That was okay, though. His rank in the hotel was only slightly elevated. He felt like more of an inside man than anything close to the man. But time would tell how his employees felt about him. The job had been offered to him. Hell, he'd nearly been begged to take it. The hotel had gone through some major upheaval over the previous year. Warren was one of four new managers in the food and beverage side of the hotel's operations. The bar, the morning restaurant, and the evening restaurant had managers who had been there for less than six months. Roland, the food and beverage director, had begged Warren to take the banquet management position. "Eh, You'll make thirty thousand a year, and, you know, that's just your base salary. Then you'll make another seven, maybe as much as ten off the gratuity percentage that is allocated to the banquet manager. You already have a morning supervisor, and you've been running the night crew for six months already, Roland had said, and there was no denying the logic. Warren could do what he was planning to do, which was move to Denver, or he could stay, work, and pay off his debt. He chose the latter and found himself at the age of 23 being in charge of as many as 15 employees, depending on the season. He'd never had an employee older than the age of 27. "'Hey, boss,' Cody said, and then went back to polishing the silverware in the tray that he'd gotten from the kitchen. "'How's it going, Cody?' Warren asked. "'Ah, we got spruce started. Forty-five seats and a chevron set up. I'll be done pretty quick,' he said. "'Ah, my man, starting off the night with some good news for once,' Warren said." "'Yeah, well, we've got another no-call,' Cody said. "'No shit? Who's that?' Warren asked. "'Ashley,' Cody said. "'Ashley? It's not even her second week,' Warren said, exasperated. "'Yeah, I know,' Cody said. "'But she was pretty much worthless. "'I had to show her three times how to roll up silverware, "'and she pretended to be too weak to stack chairs.' Man, it's always the ones who interview well who turn out to be worthless, Warren said, and he thought about Cody when he said this. Cody had been a terrible interview, but he had turned out to be a good employee. He'd have been great, ideal even, if it hadn't been for his alcoholic binges. When Cody drank, some inner demon showed its head with a wicked smile. He tried to fight damn near everything while grinning like a devil. Cody had punched four other banquet workers at the holiday Christmas party which was thankfully at someone's apartment and not the hotel. With everyone being drunk themselves and under the age of 25, it got laughed off and turned into a classic story of banquet lore that would long outlive the collective employment of the group at the hotel. The party had gone well until two guys started scuffling over a girl. It was a wrestling match that started to turn into a fistfight, which was Only broken up by Cody flying in from one room, vaulting himself over the couch like a professional wrestler and throwing his body out headfirst like a spear into the fray. He awkwardly deflected off of one employee, but then popped up throwing punches. Warren had jumped in, getting Cody into something like a half-Nelson and dragging him out across the snow to shove him headfirst into the backseat of a car while three other employees helped out. Warren dropped his phone in the snow and had to look for it. When he leaned into the car headfirst, he was met with a punch to the forehead. Dylan, Levi, and someone else, Warren couldn't really remember who, had tried climbing into the car at about the same time. Cody lashed out with four punches with the same result. Dylan jumped into the back seat and twisted Cody's ankle, punching him in the calf until he stopped thrashing. Warren drove them all home. Then later that same night after Dylan, the new nighttime supervisor, had gotten Cody safely into a spare room at his house. He woke up to Cody grinning like the devil and arcing a stream of piss about 10 feet down the hallway, dousing the wall. Cody ran out of the house in the middle of a cold winter's night. It was 10 below zero out and snowing like it never meant to let up. Cody had got a DUI while sleeping it off in his car with the engine running. A similar thing happened three months later. Just after it had all cooled off, Cody was found by the head sales lady, unresponsive in his car. She didn't call the cops on him, but it was reported to Barty, the general manager, who approached Warren, demanding Cody be fired, but somehow Warren had talked Barty down. There had been a large banquet coming up, and Warren needed all hands on deck. If he fired his best employee, he would have been up shit creek and doggy paddling. Afterwards, when Warren approached Cody, Cody's explanation had been that he'd smoked some bomb-ass weed, and it was laced with some shit. See that down there, Warren thought? That's the bar for new employees. It's so low you have to dig a hole to get under it, he laughed to himself. Warren took a pile of papers out of a sleeve that had been tacked to some corkboard in the hallway. These banquet event orders, or BEOs, were the orders from the sales office that told the banquet workers what they needed to do. The pile was light tonight, and that was lucky because without Ashley, Cody and Bella were the only two employees that he had coming in. They had 7 setups to do, which meant he'd probably have to send them home at the end of their shift. He had to make absolutely sure that he saved on labor when he could. He'd had the best labor percentage numbers for the last 3 months of any manager in the hotel. But still he never got any credit with the higher-ups. As a matter of fact, in 1 month when the banquet revenue had more than doubled the budgeted revenue established the previous year, Warren had been berated by Barty nearly doubling the budgeted labor. When Warren tried to explain that the percentage was the important part and not the overall number, Barty didn't get it. It was basic math, and the general manager didn't understand it. Roland had to go to battle with the GM and the assistant GM over this before the manager's meeting, and then after getting his ass chewed in front of his staff by the general manager, he got the award for the best labor percentage once again. No sorry from the GM. Not even a fuck you. So as much as he was beginning to truly not care what the GM said or did, Warren had decided that he would win that award every month to make Barty feel like a complete dickhead. Though he wasn't sure that Barty was capable of any such feelings, the guy was just a cowardly little worm. Warren thought. Hey, Cody said, Eileen was asking for you before you got here. Warren rolled his eyes and looked at the clock. There was a reason that he took the afternoons off most days. The higher ups, those front office nags would usually clear off before 5. They liked seeing him there first thing in the morning, and they always were suspicious when he wasn't there at some point throughout the day. It was as though they never considered that his department was typically running from 5 a.m. to midnight. They wanted him to be there when they were there, but his employees, for general morale, wanted him to be there on those shitty late nights, a department specialty. So Warren had to be seen throughout the day and then he had to stay late several nights a week. He was well fucked if he did and better fucked if he didn't most days. It wasn't all bad, though. He had a fun crew, and he did enjoy the variety that his job allowed. No two days were ever alike. Warren walked through the double doors that separated the banquet hallway from the kitchen. He passed dish racks and ice makers as he turned right to pass the prep kitchen where Jim was prepping some chicken breasts. Jim was the head chef. He watched as Jim slid the knife down the side of the breast, and then slipped his fingers in between the serrated muscle fibers, working them apart. The special that night was wild rice stuffed chicken breasts in hollandaise sauce, a staple at the hotel. By the look on Jim's face, you would think he was finger-banging the head cheerleader on prom night. There was nothing in the world Warren could stick his finger into that would make him have that blank, wide-mouthed, heavy-breathing expression that was Jim's face. Oh god, if he groans, I'm gonna quit this job on the spot, Warren thought. And if he'd only known, then he would have walked out the door. But instead, he said, Give her hell, Jim boy! Oh, Jim moaned. Oh, never mind. Just don't add anything special to the sauce, Warren said, and Jim continued breathing heavily. Warren noticed a red fabric hanging out of Jim's pocket. It had a black border with a white fleur-de-lis that reminded Warren of someone, but he wasn't sure of who or, or why it popped into his head. Jim watched him go as his fingers continued working on the flayed meat. Things were better where the line cooks worked. ACDC was blaring and everyone was cook-angry. Swears and threats passed like a beach ball at a rock concert. Hate to see you go, but I love to see you walk away, Benny said to a waitress Warren assumed was only 16. He could see what Benny was talking about, but it was one of those things that he should probably keep to himself, even if she were older. But that is why the employees all still liked and accepted Warren. He didn't sweat the small stuff. That, and he was the only manager who wasn't actually having any inappropriate relationships with his employees, he couldn't stand the monthly all-employee meetings. Every meeting, this tall, skinny dude named Kev from the front office, who looked like some strange bearded bird with his hawkish nose and bugged-out eyes, would get up and talk about inappropriate relationships in the hotel. Warren thought this was an odd choice, because. Kev had a 20-year-old girlfriend who Warren suspected he had been bawling since long before the girl graduated high school. The hypocrisy of the corporate language of management disgusted Warren. On paper and in policy, relationships amongst hotel managers and employees had to be sterile and impersonal. Like all things American, the word lawsuit stood like an ominous obelisk over the pins of the policymakers. But the employees could care less. Warren wondered if a day went by without at least one backroom, hand job or grope fest. The bar manager had threesomes with his wife and his hefty blonde bartender. He used two of his bartenders to sling weed and he was the one that Warren actually liked. But he also wasn't a hypocrite. His genuine debauched life was endearing. The restaurant manager was rumored to be blowing the elderly assistant GM, and it definitely would seem to be true with the favoritism he showered upon her, despite her being utterly worthless at her job. One of the sales ladies would sleep with clients on the regular, despite the fact that she was married. The head sales lady had a wealthy husband and treated everyone as if they were third-class citizens. Eileen, the head salesperson in training, was okay unless she got drunk. At the manager's retreat, she regularly fooled around. Hey, Laurel, what brings you out of the cave? Warren said as he spied Laurel, the head housekeeper vacuuming the terrace in the atrium. Oh, well, two no-call, no-shows this week, she said, looking at him with her large blue eyes magnified through her half-inch-thick glasses. Yeah, I had one too, Warren said. Who? Laurel asked. Ah, some new girl named Ashley, Warren answered. Huh, I, I didn't know her. Was there a problem? Laurel asked. Yeah, yeah, she was lazy. But I hadn't told her yet, Warren grinned. There have been a lot of no calls lately, especially with that Jamaican exchange crew, Laurel said. Yeah? Yeah, like three of them just disappeared. Apparently they just wanted like a way into the country. I mean, we've had a few defectors over the years, but not all at once. It seems harder every year to keep employees. Hell, it's harder every month, Laurel said as she pushed her glasses up before adding, Hey, are you ready for that big banquet tomorrow night? (sighs) No, not at all. The rooms are booked all morning. So between noon and six, we have to tear down three rooms, pull the partitions, and then set up for 300 people. I have ten people on staff, and four have to be there first thing tomorrow. I'll be there from five in the morning to midnight or later. Laurel just shook her head. I don't know how you do it, kid. Are you on some dope? Uh, no, no, but don't tell Harold I raid the bar every night for Red Bull, he said. You gotta watch yourself. That'll kill ya, I swear, Laurel said, and then went back to her vacuum. Warren began to walk away, and then he turned and asked, Who were your no-calls? Oh, uh, Darby and Piper. Laurel said. Warren had a strange feeling then as he pictured the bandana in Jim's pocket. Huh. Was Piper the one with that, you know, what do you call it, like the red thing on her head all the time? Warren asked. Yeah, she had that red and black bandana, Laurel said. Huh, too bad. She was a worker, Warren said as he headed on toward the office. He had a feeling in his stomach like he'd swallowed a ball of lead, but it passed and then he dismissed it. Lots of cooks wore bandanas, but well. Jim had never worn one as far as Warren knew. He had hardly thought of the coming banquet. He had considered making his staff stay late tonight and do some prep work, but the morning staff would be able to do everything that could be done until the meetings were out. They had better be done by noon, too, because if not, he would have to force them out of the room, which would cause complaints. Once again, the sales staff was setting him up for failure. He'd have to push the morning meetings out of their rooms at noon and then he'd end up behind the ball on the setup for the next meeting. They couldn't even have done him the favor of convincing the meetings to use round tables. Instead, he'd have to have his employees clear the room of all of the rectangular tables before bringing back in the round ones. He could set a few of the round tables up in the unused rooms, and then move them, water glasses and all, once the partitions could come down. As inconvenient as this all was, the inconvenience was routine. When he got to Eileen's office, he found her working at her computer with a pile of new banquet order forms on her desk. Great, he thought. Another busy month coming up. Oh, hi, Warren, she said and closed her laptop. Hey, Eileen, Warren said. Cody said you wanted to see me? Yeah, so that group tomorrow has requested that they get a hot tea as well as coffee, and there will be cups on each table, she started. Yeah, they'll have cups, he said. They will all have coffee cups. They always do. Yeah, she said. They will, but they want to do this with their own teacups. It's a long-standing tradition for them, and I expect that they'll remember us better if they are able to enjoy their traditions here. Eileen's eyes were getting that glassy look that Warren immediately recognized as her stressing out. Her jaw muscle flexed as she chewed her gum. Oh, God, she is fucking nuts, Warren thought as he snatched the paper she was handing out towards him. So we're going to get the cups at Four and the banquet starts at six? Warren said, looking at her to see if the realization would dawn on her face. It didn't. No big surprise there. Eileen, all of my staff is hitting overtime. There's not a single application in the slush pile that does not have an extensive criminal background. The last two interviews I've given have been to teenagers in flip flops. Flip flops. So, unless you're going to come inspect all of these cups yourselves, then they are going to go right onto the table which I'm not even sure we can actually set the tables with anything we haven't ran through the dishwasher, legally speaking. It won't take that long to put the cups out on the tables, Eileen said. Yeah, yeah it will, Warren said. It will because we'll be rushing to set the rest of the room in time. If one of those other groups tries to push it past noon, I'm going to cut the lights out on them. But when they come to complain about how awful their experience was, it's on you this time. But, of course, you've brown-nosed Dave so much that he'll just blame me anyways, Warren said, but Eileen had simply gone back to shuffling some papers on her desk. She was chewing her gum faster, a clue that on some level he'd reached her despite her appearing nonplussed. Oh, we also need to talk to Jim. He has been ordering the meat from a new local butcher, and it's flavorful, but, well, there isn't enough marbling. It needs more fat on it or something. Yeah, you want the fat meat. I'll pass it on, Warren said. Oh, Eileen said as Warren turned to storm out of the office. "Uh, One more thing, Warren, she said casually. There will be cards on their place settings to signal what they are getting. They are big meat eaters. The colors will represent the meal. It's either red for ribs or brown for brisket. Oh, well, this is just another big steaming pile of crap, Warren thought as he walked towards the kitchen. Across the atrium and through the Greenland, which is what the morning restaurant was called, he noticed Jim disappearing around the corner toward the tower, the four-story side of the building where the guest rooms were. Other than maintenance, bellmen, and housekeeping, employees weren't supposed to go near the tower unless there was some special circumstance requiring it. The maintenance shop, the laundry, a bathroom, and one small banquet storage area were all that were over there. But Warren had never seen the chef have any need to go to that part of the hotel. Perhaps he hadn't been able to reach maintenance on the radio. Warren realized that he wasn't wearing his radio. He was always in trouble for not wearing his radio, but he hated wearing the thing. He thought that it made him look like a pretentious turd, and he only had to use it about twice a week, and no one ever tried to reach him over it. He occasionally had to track down the MOD, or manager on duty, with it, and sometimes the maintenance man. He wore his radio for his first three weeks, and then never once did he hear M.O.D. to banquets, or anything equivalent buzz in his ear. People just called the banquet hallway if they needed him. Someone stepped out of the bathroom as Warren passed and almost toppled him over the small rock wall. He caught the hand of his unattended assailant as he started to fall. Gentry? Warren exclaimed. As an always sweaty and breathless young man with dark hair and tanned skin pulled him in and patted him down as though he were inspecting him for broken parts. Oh, Warren, I, I'm so sorry. I didn't see you there, Gentry said. Warren hadn't realized how thick and heavy Gentry really was until that collision. He wasn't obese, but he was well on his way there. Oh, no harm, no foul, but Christ, watch where you are going. I could have been a guest, Warren said in a tone so managerial that it turned sour in his mouth. Ah, yes, yes, of, of course, Warren. Uh, have, a, have a good evening, he said. Uh, you too, Gentry. Warren said Gentry was bumbling, sweaty, and awkward, but he was immensely likable. You couldn't dislike him with effort. He was one of the good ones in the hotel, and Warren thought he, unlike most of the ragtag group of 'er ne'er-do-wells that comprised the populace of employees, actually meant it when he smiled. Few people mean it when they smile. Warren decided that he'd catch up to Jim and ask him about the meals tomorrow and pass along Eileen's message about the food not being up to her pretentious standards. He also wanted to make sure that Jim had got the updated number for the dinner. Occasionally, the salespeople would make a last-minute change to the number of people, and that number wouldn't get passed on to the kitchen. It happened often, and for some reason when it did, the blame somehow fell on Warren for not double-checking with Jim to see. That is how it went. Warren was the most overworked, one of the lower-paid, the youngest, and overloaded with the duties of all of the managers. He was also a convenient scapegoat because they could just blame it on the young guy. Despite this, Warren's staff was more independent and efficient because he allowed them to take ownership of their responsibilities. He wished the higher-ups would do the same with him, but they seemed content acting like they needed to hold his hand through all of the simple stuff, but abandoned him whenever they put him in a pinch. He was learning that middle management was nothing more than a game of shedding blame. As long as you could make it someone else's fault with the GM, or if when a company president came a-knocking, you could pass the buck, then everything was hunky-dory. Unfortunately, Warren would get caught up in the principle of things, and this tendency to look beyond self-interest meant that he was the loser of the blame game. He rounded the corner and passed Scott, the maintenance kid with all the tats and earrings. Yo, Scott said as he double-clicked his radio to confirm that he'd heard what had been said to him through his earpiece. Hey, man, have you seen Jim? Warren asked. Brown Jim? Scott asked, referring to one of the housekeepers named Jim, a small and darker-skinned man who vacuumed a lot. Warren didn't think the nickname would pass the HR handbook for being workplace appropriate, and it definitely would not stand up to the internet. But in small-town Wyoming, this was par for the course. Uh, no, no, uh, not him, Warren said. Uh, chef. Now, nah, bro. Why would Chef be in these parts? Scott asked. I don't know. I just saw him around, come around the corner like a few minutes ago. For real? No, oh, I've been working on the light next to the laundry room, and I never saw him come by. Scott said, and Warren shrugged. And maybe he just went to the shitter. I guess. Without me seeing him. Well, well, maybe, but I don't think so. The dude breathes like he's a zombie. Scott said, and. Warren laughed. It was true. Jim was big and breathed heavily and stared off into the distance a lot with his strange, watery gray eyes. Scott went on with his business, heading towards the swimming pool to either check the pH of the water or fish out a turd and shut down the pool for the next 24 hours. Warren couldn't believe how many times the pool got shit in during the course of a year. Warren peeked around the corner and didn't see Jim. The hallway was still, and the low yellow light gave an eerie quality to the silence. Warren felt himself shiver before he turned to see the door to the storage area was slightly ajar, and the light inside of it was on. Warren walked over and opened the door, which required a key to open. He looked inside, and some of the chairs had been moved around. In the back, there was an old broken table. There were miscellaneous odds and ends, including some broken televisions, which were never going to get fixed, and a bunch of cleaning materials. He remembered his first day in the hotel when Eric, a punk rock aficionado in his late 20s, was giving Warren the tour of the hotel. He said that this storage room was once a small chapel for the guests to pray in, and then, one day, there had been some sort of animal attack and three people had been killed, or so they thought. The bodies had been there and had looked to be chewed on, but there were no animals to be found. Not so much as a hare, Eric had said. Rumors went around that it had been a demon or a ghost. Some even thought that it had been a half-mad bellman who had gone on to murder four women years later. These things, all of which had been rumored to happen nearly 70 years in the past, long before the hotel had been added onto, were all part of the ghost lore that surrounded the hotel. People who worked in the tower where the guests stayed had stories of hearing strange noises or feeling a presence. Some claimed that while entering dark rooms, they'd be bitten or scratched on the leg. A few times, amateur ghost hunters had come to the hotel because they had read about it on Reddit. Warren didn't really buy it. He'd been working at the hotel for years and had hardly heard any stories from his coworkers. It was always someone telling something about what may have happened way back in the day. The chapel-turned-storage room was one of the few parts of the hotel that didn't get touched during the extensive renovations. Chap Storage, as it was called, was over a hundred years old. Warren looked around a little more and was just about to leave when he saw something. On the floor was a brown paper bag that had been torn in places. It was almost as though it had been chewed around the edges, and that was when he noticed the rotting smell. He pinched his nose and used a hanger off the coat rack to move the bag into the light so that he could see it. Inside the bottom of the bag was a chunk of meat that was beginning to rot. "Ah, Damn it, he said as he quickly grabbed several garbage bags off of the cleaning cart in the corner. He took a can of air freshener off of the cart and then sprayed down the bag, pulled on a latex glove that was too small, and put the brown bag into the plastic garbage bag and then tied it off. He doubled up the garbage bag to conceal the smell completely, and then left the room, locking the door and then shutting the light off behind him. If he hadn't been in such a hurry, he may have noticed a sound, like several large rats dragging themselves through the walls. Warren went to the next door, which opened into the maintenance shop and as he did, a light flickered on beneath the door he had just closed. A moment later, after the trash had been tossed into the dumpster, he came back in through the hallway and did a double-take. He opened the door and saw that nothing was out of place. No one had taken or moved anything, and yet the light was on once again. In the kitchen, Warren passed Jim as he was putting on his old leather jacket. Jim rode a motorcycle most nights, and he had a jacket that looked damn near old as he was, which was, what, exactly? 50? 60? Warren couldn't tell. Hey, Jim, Warren said. Did you get the updated numbers? Jim shook his head and continued looking at Warren. Okay, well, uh, here they are. Warren handed the printout to Jim, who raised his eyes. He wondered if Jim was going to be able to add 15 plates of brisket and 17 plates of ribs on such short notice. Oh, and the the queen bee said that your meat isn't fat enough for her. Take that however you will, Warren said. Mm, I'll, uh, have to get them fatter ones, Jim said, as though to himself. Uh, sure, Warren said. Jim grumbled a, thanks, in his gruff voice. Then he gave Warren another appraising look, and Warren said, no problem, and walked away, if for no other reason than to get away from Jim's gaze. Oh, the dude is a world-class creeper, Warren thought. Warren could feel Jim's eyes on him for a moment longer, and when the feeling passed, he glanced back just to make sure. Jim left through the doors. It was then that Warren noticed that Jim's hand was bandaged and looked like it had been bleeding. He left a small smear of blood on the double doors between the kitchen and the banquet hallway as he left. Warren stopped and looked at the reddish smear on the gray doors, the scarlet life on the noir backdrop of the hallway entrance. Jim, who was a bit of a clean freak, had left not only a smear on the door, but there were drops of blood on the ground leading from the doors back towards the dry storage area. Warren stepped into the walk-in closet that was full of bulk condiments, spices, and assorted dry ingredients. It had always been a little creepy in dry storage. It was something about the layout of the room, the L-shaped design. When you went into the storage area and stepped around the corner, all of the sound from the kitchen turned down to a low background murmur of shouts and clinks and clanks. I need a break from this place, Warren thought when he saw the dishwasher was knuckle deep in his own nose. He stepped into dry storage, careful not to step on any of the blood which he'd have the dishwasher mop up with the floor cleaner. The room was dark, which was odd. Typically, the light was already on, so when his hand went instinctively to where he thought the switch would be, he felt only cold tile. His stomach flipped when something moved across the floor in front of him. Hello? Who's there? he said, and then realized at once that it was a dumb thing to say. He couldn't imagine somebody lying on the floor in dry storage in the dark. He reached for the light again, but came up with another cold tile. It had become eerily quiet. Even the ambient noises in the kitchen seemed far off and more dampened than usual. Warren reached for his cell phone to use it as a flashlight, and he flicked the light on just in time to see. A hooked and crooked thing that looked like the withered leg of a small starving child, like the ones you see in advertisements depicting some far-off, hunger-plagued country. Warren groaned and dropped his phone. There was a frantic movement and the sound of something dragging. Warren fell back into the wall, and his hand found the switch. He flipped it. He found the room was empty, and the droplets of blood stopped near the far wall beneath some large cans of tomato sauce. Something had smeared one of the droplets in a streak that ended abruptly at the edge of one of the umber tiles. Above that was a carton of cans with the plastic pulled off. Huh, it must have been a rat's tail, or maybe like a, I don't know, a hairless cat, he told himself, but he knew that wasn't true. The floor and walls were tiled in the dry storage, so there weren't any holes that something like a rat could easily come in and out of. This was true for most of the kitchen, and whatever he saw was at least the size of a cat, if not bigger. There was always the possibility that a guest had brought in one of those fucking weird-looking hairless cats. Cats that Warren thought looked like four-legged ball sacks. Warren decided to believe that it had been nothing more than some of the plastic catching the light, and he would have realized this if he hadn't been such a massive pussy and dropped the light. Warren nearly went and got the MOD and told him that there was an animal of some kind in the kitchen. But that would certainly lead to the kitchen getting shut down for the night and a visit from the health inspector. With the banquets coming up, the hotel could lose hundreds of thousands in revenue if the kitchens became closed. So, instead, Warren, looking shaken, told the dishwasher to mop up the blood. Yep, the dishwasher said. Jim cut himself. The dishwasher, Stuart, was handicapped to some degree, but Warren wasn't sure the cause or classification. He did know that Stewart always wore the same expression despite whatever may have been coming out of his mouth. He could be saying hello or calling the spray nozzle, a goddamn motherfucking piece of cunt trash, and he'd have the same amused look on his face. Warren considered that the times he'd heard Stewart unleash strings of profanity were the only times he never said, yep. Yeah, uh, we can't have blood in the kitchen, Warren said. Yep, Jim cuts himself a lot, yep. Saw him digging through the first aid kit I did, yep. Stuart said, and as Warren walked away, he heard Stuart continue yepping to no one at all. By the time Warren made it back to the banquet hall, he began to feel that he'd just imagined the whole thing. The next week, he would talk to the head of maintenance, and the two of them, together, along with Roland, would go and look through the kitchen to see if they could find any evidence of an animal being in there. If there wasn't a cat hair or a mouse turd to be found, then Warren would let it all go and forget he'd ever been there. Warren drove his 1998 Honda Accord home. With his salary, he could have gone out like all the other young Wyomingites, and bought a jacked-up $60,000 pickup, but he decided instead to dump all of his money into the few debts that he had, and the rest into his savings account. He drove west of town towards the mountains long after the sun had set. It was a quiet drive on a winding Wyoming highway with no shoulders. The last street lamp on the far end of town glowed orange, and then it was nothing but the white eyes of the delineator poles and the visual metronome of the center stripes passing by. Nearly hypnotized, he almost missed the turn into his, or rather his parents' drive. He lived at home, which he absolutely hated at his age, but it was for the reason of saving money. And that wasn't entirely uncommon at 23. It did make it difficult to get a girl home, especially considering most of the girls he was chasing were the ones coming home on break from UW in Laramie. He filed it away as a necessary sacrifice to reach escape velocity, so that he could move somewhere where girls in bikinis and girls in bikinis would quickly make him forget about the land of not. He got home, looked at Facebook, which had a couple of messages from girls he'd been trying to talk to. They were girls he knew back in high school who came home often and were still single. He wasn't interested. And they probably weren't either, but they shared mutual boredom in the internet, so occasionally on drunk nights he got some pretty interesting text messages. He sent back a few short replies. Gotta leave them wanting more, he said to himself with a smirk. He knew that wasn't true either, as David Duchovny said in his portrayal of the debauched moralist Hank Moody. All women knew whether they wanted to marry, kill, or fuck a guy within the first ten minutes there were a couple of other categories that the good old Hank forgot to mention. In particular, the ominous friend zone, which was a space he absolutely refused to occupy. He had a lot of girls that were friends, but if he was interested in them, he'd check right out of that space. He watched too many guys get let on trying to work their way into a girl's pants doing all of the cry-on-my-shoulder bullshit. After getting off of social media, he decided to do some gaming, but after 10 minutes or so, of getting beat down by what were likely cocky 12-year-olds, he decided it was time to hit the hay. Warren thought about the banquet the next day and how much Eileen drove him crazy. And just before he slipped off into dreamland, he thought of that strange sound he had heard in the dry storage area and shivered. Warren found himself wandering through the hotel that night in his dreams. Something was chasing him through the hallways, which were longer and had higher ceilings than the version in the land of the awake. He could hear it behind him, a sound like a giant rodent dragging its back legs. He ran as fast and hard as he could, but the harder he tried to run, the slower he moved. It was as though the air around him was as thick as jello. He could hear it coming behind him. He could see the shadow nearing the corner, but then it was only gentry. Gentry walked by him and mouthed something like a silent scream as he pushed his vacuum across the carpet, sucking up popcorn kernels that would break into pieces and reform into other kernels, and then popped again like small, fat bugs full of blood. Gentry's face, which was normally full of color, was a pale blue, like the color of someone who'd just been pulled out from a river and was drowning. The expression of a scream stayed on his face, and his eyes never left Warren. Warren tried to speak to him, but he couldn't talk. He walked around the corner and opened up a small door to a conference room, but found himself standing in the kitchen. But it wasn't the kitchen at the hotel, not exactly. It was the combination of the kitchen with the dry storage area. There were boxes of canned and dried goods on the racks and tables that usually had kitchen equipment and in the center of the room was a steel table where Jim stood with his back to Warren. Warren could see that he was peeling potatoes into one of the economy-sized pots that were sometimes used to cook large quantities of soup. Warren walked slowly by Jim, and when he passed him, he turned to see that Jim had stopped peeling potatoes, and now instead he was peeling his thumbs, his large Freakish thumbs that were roughly the size and the shape of potatoes in this nightmare. Layers of bloody flesh fell into the pot and something, something in the pot made hissing and smacking sounds as it or or them. Oh god, it was definitely more than one creature. Fought over the peelings of flesh. Jim smiled and his teeth were pointed in yellow. He raised his knife to his own throat, mimed a slashing motion and then pointed the tip of the knife at Warren. Behind him on the grill were stacks of rib cages. Warren sat up in bed screaming. The next morning, Warren came in through the strip curtains and noticed a thumbprint on the inside of the clear plastic strip. He wasn't sure what the curtains were for, other than insulation, perhaps. There was a small corridor between two sets of hanging plastic strips. They were each a foot wide, and went all the way to the floor. It created a breezeway of sorts, and he imagined that the curtains helped keep out the sub-zero temperatures in the winter. What he did know is that the dried, maroon fingerprints on the inside of the curtains would need to be cleaned. He would get Gentry for this. Gentry was the go-to guy for obscure cleaning projects, and with the banquet staff being more than busy enough that night, he'd make sure to get someone else to do any extra cleaning. In the hallway, he found Darren, Leslie, and Christine, three of his crew. The GM was just coming into the hallway through one of the service doors, so Warren took an abrupt left into the kitchen. He'd wheel through the kitchen and the AM restaurant and then come back into the hallway through the only empty banquet room. He was going to have to talk to Barty eventually, but not this morning. As he walked through the kitchen, he saw Jim, whose hand was bandaged with gauze. What did you do to your hand? Warren asked. Oh, just cut myself chopping up some vegetables, Jim said. His voice was casual, normal even. He managed a smile this time, which was not too unusual, but his blue-gray eyes were flat. The expression in them never matched the expression on his face. Were you able to find more meat for the increase in numbers? Oh, yeah. We have plenty of meat. Good meat, too, Jim said, and he looked exhilarated. Warren walked away.
2: She didn't show up
1: again, Christy, the morning restaurant supervisor, was saying as Warren walked by. Her long blonde hair pulled back into a bun so tight that the corners of her eyes were pulled up slightly. Her eyes had that aloof feral quality that makes some cats look instinctive and dangerous. Who didn't show? Warren asked. Peggy, Christy said. Peggy was a rotund woman who stood five feet tall and had to tip the scales at well over 200 pounds. Warren had chuckled to himself many times at the idea that if she tripped, she may simply roll away like a sort of human ball. Well, maybe it's time to fire, her, Warren suggested as he walked past. (sighs) Yeah, I should. Not that I could find any decent help to take her place. The new people don't seem to like sticking around. Hey, did you try the chili they're making for lunch? You should. It is exquisite. I'm not sure what changed, but it has way more flavor than usual. Warren wasn't hungry, and the chili at the hotel had long been a disappointment to him. Coming from a family with many relocated Texans, Warren's idea of chili was more meat and onions and less beans. For some reason, in the Midwest, people insisted on making chili out of almost nothing but beans. One bowl, and you were sure to be blasting off like a trumpet in no time. He took a small cup and poured a little chili into it. It looked fuller than normal. Typically, it was red and runny like soup, with beans and some smaller aggregate that was possibly beef. To Warren's surprise, this appeared to be nearly all beef, and when he bit into it, he found it to be tender and flavorful. He raised the cup as Christy walked by with a serving tray full of salads. Wow, you weren't joking. This is fantastic. Christy winked at him as she passed. He would be thinking about the chili and that wink for the next few minutes as he went to find Gentry. Eventually, he found Laurel, who informed him that Gentry had not shown up for his shift that morning. Gentry? Warren exclaimed. Yeah, that was my response too, Laurel said. Leading up to the banquet, everything went as smoothly as it could. Two of the morning groups were done an hour and a half early. The third ran 15 minutes long, but with the other rooms to clear, Warren could put his staff to work. Eileen happened to show up in the foyer at 10 to noon. She paced back and forth, smiling at guests as they came and went. When the room finally broke, Warren noticed her walk over and then spit her gum into the hallway trash can. The setup went smoothly, at first. They took down the partition walls and opened up all four convention rooms, then began spreading around the tables. Once the tables were set in place, the banquet crew, in their black pants and white button-down shirts, placed silverware, coffee cups, water glasses, and centerpieces. Salt and pepper was filled and placed. Display tables were skirted, and last but not least, chairs were brought in. Barty poked his head in, looked over the room, smiled, and gave Warren a hearty thumbs up before turning back into the foyer. A few minutes later, Roland walked in the room and double-checked everything, as was their routine. Roland had a banquet background, and Warren had asked him to always come double-check everything. There were a few folded napkins missing, but other than that, the crew had gotten nearly everything ready well ahead of time. Warren sent them to fill water glasses and start on coffee. Jim's just plating the food, Roland said. Nice! I hope that the new beef is as good in brisket as it was in that chili, Warren said, and Roland agreed. Warren could tell that Roland had also tried out the beef. In the banquet hallway, the cooks brought out the warmers, which were large insulated metal containers with racks in them. They were heated with sterno burners, which could lead to problems if one of the cooks put the small flame burners directly below any of the food. The banquet employees set down stacks of plates, and the upper management grouped around the table to help plate up the food. They wore nitrile gloves, and at Warren's word, they began plating up the food. The back server or Tray Runner, put the plates on the trays with several tiers using the plate covers so that the plates could be stacked. The front servers placed the plates according to the tags. The hallway smelled of rosemary, garlic, and the sweet smells of grilled meat. The brisket had been slow cooked, and if the chef had done his duty, there would be extra after the banquet. A little-known secret, which was likely not on the up-and-up with food safety practices according to the health department. But, Where saving a few bucks was concerned, the hotel had a don't ask, don't tell approach, was that Jim used the previous night's banquet meat for the next day's soup and sandwich meat. London broil for dinner, Philly sandwiches, and au jus for lunch. Tacos for lunch, chili for dinner, and so on. Amen. Sometimes, however, if there was enough leftover meat, Jim would carve it up and serve it to the banquet and kitchen staff. A $30 meal for free several times a week was great, Sometimes Warren would go two or three weeks in a row getting three full paid-for meals a day on the customer's dime. Most of the time, the hotel would throw away hundreds of pounds of uneaten buffet food a week, and that was after the staff had picked through it. Two blocks from the hotel was a street corner where year-round homeless people would stand to beg for change, and in the back of the parking lot, Just out of sight, enough food was thrown away every day to keep them fed for months. At a point, the food was collected occasionally by the local food bank, but a food safety concern had shut that down. This is the America we live in, Warren thought. A hundred people can suffer an empty stomach so long as nobody gets sued over an upset one. Warren walked into the room as his servers collected tickets and served plates removing the covers of the piping hot dishes. People smiled and expressed gratitude. Others were laughing over drinks, and a few tasted their meals and looked satisfied. A group of 20-year-old kids had once again come through in spite of the sales department. Warren was as happy as he'd ever been with his staff, and then he took notice of a group of people standing by the doorway and looking around. Janet, the group's event coordinator, stood with them. Looking at the tables, Warren's stomach dropped. They were counting the seats. Not wanting to wait, he approached them. Uh, Janet, he said, is everything all right? Well, yes, and and no, everything looks great, but we don't have enough seats for everyone. Yeah, our, our count was 320, Warren said. Yes, and we told Eileen 307, Janet said, but she assured us that there would be enough food and seating for an additional 10% just in case. Warren went back into the hallway and called out Eileen right in front of Barty. He looked pissed, but he could see that Barty's eyes weren't on Eileen, but instead, like always, on him. We always prepare for 10 extra percent, Eileen said. We do that for buffets, not plated meals with specific counts. You realize that there were 105 people having ribs and the rest had brisket, right? What if those people want ribs and that 10 extra percent won't cover them or even half? You should have prepared for more, Eileen said. How? By just making up a number and going with it? The more tables we set, the more labor we use. I can't stay under labor budget if I'm trying to predict numbers that should be provided. Not to mention the fact that I had my servers clear out the morning restaurant of all of its cups and water glasses. The bar and evening restaurant are busy. We'll be up all night resetting the other restaurant because we don't have enough glassware to suitably provide for a larger banquet. Warren was finally loosening his tongue a little bit, and it felt good. He had never defended himself in front of Barty. Anyway, Eileen, how do we solve this? We can blame each other on Monday if we have to, he said, feeling very proud of himself. Barty raised his eyebrows and looked at Eileen, who started to speak, closed her mouth, and then started again when Jim interrupted. Oh, we have plenty, Jim said. What? Eileen said, looking relieved. The new suppliers sent us extra, Jim said. He had that look on his face, that same strange look he had whenever Warren saw him cutting meat in the kitchen. Barty moved away from him, slightly, and looked at him. Warren had seen this before. People tended to avoid Jim but it was so instinctive he didn't know if they realized they were even doing it. You, you know, uh, they want to they win us over, so there's a lot of extra, Jim said. Warren felt relief for the solution to the problem in equal parts with the disappointment that he wouldn't be able to rub Eileen's mistakes in her face. After the banquet started, the doors were closed, leaving the employees an hour or so to get the hallway cleaned up and then eat the food that Jim had plated for them. The upper management had left, all except Eileen, whom Warren could hear showering Jim with praise over the flavor of the meat. My God, it's so sweet and full. Are you sure these ribs aren't pork? Because they don't taste like beef to me. They are savory. Wow, Jim. Whatever you gotta do, keep it coming. Warren saw a gleam in Jim's eye, and he thought, You self-impressed bastard. Then, he tasted the meat, and he knew why. The night was a breeze after that. Eventually, the presentation was over, and the dance floor was assembled. The banquet crew went in and cleared off all of the dishes. Warren went outside and sat at the picnic table by the dumpster where employees would go to smoke their cigarettes. He watched the last of the late summer rays turn from deep orange to purple. Warren sat with the fence blocking him from the light. When a fat bald man stumbled around the corner, his neck seemed to fold in around his large bald head, and he was covered by a purple shining shirt that could have served as a tint for Warren. A woman came around the corner with him and pushed him back up against the wall. She had long, thick, graying blonde hair that went over her shoulders in untamed puffs. Her large breasts spilled out of her red tank top. She sucked on a cigarette, blew a cloud of smoke in the bald man's face, and then went up on her toes to kiss him. He ran his hands over her chest, and her breast slipped out of her tank top. Warren shifted uncomfortably, looking for a mode of egress that wouldn't alert them to his presence. He looked again, and the man's hand had slipped down and was fondling the woman's crotch. Warren looked away, disturbed not by what he saw, but by the fact that on some level he'd measured a lustful reaction, as though part of him wanted to watch. He looked back at the couple and nearly fell off his seat. A man was standing behind them, but they were too involved to notice. It wasn't just any man, it was Jim. Jim took out a large knife. The blade gleamed in the light. Warren tried to cry out, but only croaked. Jim stood erect with his hands folded in front of him, holding the knife. Then he quickly stabbed forward, driving the knife through the woman's neck. There was a juicy, meaty sound and then gurgling. Hey, what the fuck? the bald man shouted. Warren had stood up and could see him better. The man was very drunk and didn't seem to realize what was happening. What the fuck did you do? The bald man shouted, and then he stepped forward, and the woman moved with him, her head pinned to his chest by the knife. Oh, 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 the fuck. Oh, oh, fuck. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck you up. What did you do to Ellen? What the fuck did you do? Oh, fuck. The man shouted as he stumbled in circles, and Ellen, the dying girl in the tank top, moved with him, the two caught in a horrific waltz. She was still alive, still gurgling, when he tried to push her away but her body began to jerk, and her legs gave out, and now she was just hanging with her arms out to her sides, pinned to this man, the knife, through her neck and into his meaty chest. Jim looked at them, turning his head back and forth, and then he raised a meat tenderizer high over his head and then brought it down on top of the man's skull. Bits of blood splattered the side of the building. Jim grabbed the bodies and then put them into a laundry cart. The man wasn't as big as he had looked at first. It was just that Ellen, the woman, was very small. They didn't fit in the cart, but Jim was able to put them in and cover them with some blankets. He took out his radio and said, Jim to maintenance. There was a double click of a response. Someone on the fourth floor is complaining about the sink. I think they said room 418. There was another clicking response. Jim put his ear up to the door of the maintenance shop and then listened, and a moment later, he opened the door and stepped inside. Warren reached for his phone and then realized it wasn't in his pocket. He reached for his belt and realized he didn't have his radio with him. He'd given it to Dylan earlier. Warren decided that he was going to pursue Jim, thinking that if he could distract him, then maybe, just maybe, he could get some help. Warren was young and athletic, and Jim was big and undoubtedly strong, but if it came down to a foot race, Warren felt like he could hop on one foot and outrun Jim. If only Ashley had been there to tell him, Warren may have approached things differently. He went into the maintenance shop and slowly closed the door behind him. He looked down and was surprised to find that there was no blood. He walked along the tables until he came to the door. He looked out just in time to see the door to Chap Storage closing. When he did... He heard something in the walls. It started slowly and then picked up. It sounded as though the walls were alive. Warren went to the door of chap storage, and out in the hotel the sound was muffled, but he could hear it still, if he focused hard enough. Then he heard a scrape and a sound like a door closing. Warren tried the handle and found the door hadn't been closed all the way, and the light was on. He pushed open the door and looked in, and what he saw was a few stacks of chairs and an old television that looked as though it hadn't moved in several decades. He looked around, and that is when he saw it. There was a golden name tag laying against the shelves on the corner. He picked it up, and he read Gentry. Oh my god, Warren said as he felt spit rising in his mouth. He smacked his lips a few times, and then it hit him with little to no warning. He bent down and vomited up the rib meat and potato salad he'd just eaten. He fell on his knees and felt like he was going to puke again, and then he stared into it, into the chunks of meat lying on the floor in front of him, the new meat, the tasty meat, and what? The recent no-call, no-shows? That's, that's what? Warren felt himself get sick again. That is when he heard something like muffled screams coming from the walls. Warren looked up and noticed that one of the shelving units was slightly askew, and there was blood, a thumbprint, a bloody thumbprint. Warren grabbed the shelf and pulled on it. It was made of solid, heavy lumber. And how old was it, he wondered, but he thought that he knew. It was as old as the hotel. These shelves had been there since the hotel had been built and never moved. Warren grabbed them and pulled on them, not knowing what he expected to find but he was sure something was behind them. He had to plant his foot against the wall and push to get them to budge, but when they did, they slid free, and he was able to see a doorway behind them. To his surprise, it wasn't dark. Warren walked down the hallway that opened up in front of him, moving toward the light. All around him, it sounded as though the walls were crawling. He came to the edge of the light and found the laundry cart in front of him, it was empty and it smelled like piss and shit. Warren crouched low and then crawled up behind it. He looked into a room that looked like something out of the old West. There was fancy crown molding, but the walls had turned yellow as the wallpaper had faded. There were three other doors the one he was looking through, one on each side and one directly across from him, that was barred with an old large board. The door looked heavy, and it was rattling. Just a minute, Jim said. Calm down, Chef, chef is here. He, he'll feed you. On a table in the middle of the room, Ellen, the woman who had been stabbed, was lying, still gurgling and coughing. Warren was shocked that she was still alive, though only a few minutes had passed, he supposed a few minutes or a thousand years he couldn't tell it felt like the banquet was a memory recalled from a past life the fat man was on another table he was breathing heavily and obviously unconscious jim tightened the cloth gag he had in the woman's mouth and said sorry but they like him alive so i'm not going to kill you jim took the knife and poked at the woman bringing blood up from her arm and then from a small box of tools He brought out a turkey baster. He shoved it into the hole that he had cut in the woman's wrist and then began to suck up the blood that came out. Once he had the baster about half full, he sprinkled a little bit of blood between Ellen and the fat man. Then he dripped it in a trail toward the door. There was still some left, so that he just squirted a puddle on the floor. The door was rattling. Something on the other side was trying to get in. Jim lifted the heavy wooden beam and then backed away. The door swung open. For a moment, there was nothing. Nothing on the other side except for a hesitant, expecting darkness. Then, an arthritic looking human hand appeared and smeared the blood around. There was a sucking sound, and then the hand reappeared, looking much less sickly. A creature crawled out from an open doorway. At first, it was only one. It was slightly emaciated, and it had a single long arm and half of a human head with a yellow eye and stringy black hair. The rest of it was a fleshy slug, like a bag. Then another came out behind it, and it looked even more emaciated, skeletal, but nearly completely lacking any sort of skeleton. They crawled forward, lapping at the blood. The cyclopean eyes searched, but Warren knew somehow it was blind to everything but the blood. They followed the blood, and then, when the first one reached Ellen, it pulled itself up onto her bed, drove its face down into her neck, making strange slurping sounds. It sucked and chewed and clawed, and as it did, its body swelled and then split open, producing another strange-looking creature. Each of these creatures seemed to be able to replace itself once while feeding, and as they ate, they grew, becoming fatter and larger, a whole lifetime of aging in one moment. Strangely, they became more human, growing stubby legs and a second arm, the face seemed to fold out from the slug-like end, which became the belly, and then, as they ate, the belly grew, distended. They were small but grew with each bite until their bellies swelled and they were fattened to the point of total lethargy. Ellen and the fat man were nothing but a pile of dripping bones and the floor was littered with groaning little creatures in comas of satiation with their feeble hands on their great bellies. Warren had the sudden impression that the creatures looked like Ellen and the fat man somehow. Jim took out his knife and groaned. Warren caught a glimpse of Jim's erection pressing out against his jeans as he set the knife down and took out a meat cleaver. He opened the door and rolled four or five of the creatures back in, then turned on the others with the trained accuracy of a butcher and began hacking off the heads. He mumbled to himself, Ugh, Red for ribs, brown for brisket. As he drugged the headless body of one of the creatures into the side room, Warren could hear the refrigeration running and saw hanging sausage and flanks of meat. One of the heads that lay on the floor stared, slack-jawed at Warren. In the cooler, he thought he saw one that slightly resembled gentry next to a pile of large bones.
0: I guess we've moved on to the next round, and, um, well, we have this lady.
2: Hey, everybody. Uh, I, I'm really excited to be here. <sighs>
3: oh, uh, the
2: director, yeah.
0: Well, our first round ended with an attempted murder, so Bachelor number three was disqualified. Bachelor number two is, well, Patrick, so he's gone now. Now we have the bachelors from our previous weeks. Bachelor number one, welcome back. I thank you, child. No one has been calling me number one lately. Bachelor number two, it's always an experience.
2: Oh, I oh, oh, thank you,
0: thank you. Oh. And puggles, whatever.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> come over here, Baldy and I'll uh, take two <laughs> of you.
0: Now, where were we? Ah, yes. What is your idea
2: of a perfect evening? Okay, uh, uh, bachelor's, uh, what what is your idea of a perfect evening? Uh, Go for it, number one.
0: Hmm, twice in a minute. I'll take that. Well, to be honest, worship and serenity. (sighs)
2: Uh, Number number two, let's hear from you instead. Oh, oh, uh, uh, yeah. A perfect evening. I would, uh... You and I would have a lovely dinner at a restaurant of your choice, and, uh... Then then I'd have you uh, slip something into my drink. Oh, and then I'd wake up in a a long, narrow hallway made of uh, stainless steel, and I'd be strapped to a table, and there would be, uh... Oh, monsters. Oh, God. Yes? And I mean, uh... Uh, a monster, and then and then he would.
0: Right, we get the picture. Number three. If we really have to. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Well, uh, I just
3: take you to the uh, the trunk <laughs> and pull down your and put two and then crank your. And then crank your and then and then I de-ball your butter.
2: Oh, oh my. Uh,
0: Bachelorette, allow me to apologize. Jane, can I call you Jackie?
2: It's Janet.
0: Okay, Jezzy, how about, uh, oh my, is that the vampire? Uh, Matt, look
1: out. Why is it naked?
3: I am here to return the impaling.
0: Monster Porn, Weird Fiction and Horror Podcast, The Dating Show, The Podcast, is a production of my abject loneliness and malaise. Today's story was Red for Ribs, Brown for Brisket, by Bachelor number three. Wasn't it good? (sighs) So anyways, anyone seen any good monster porn lately? Uh... Good day, Monster Baiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, I hope you'll accept this rose and join us again in the next episode. And second, please consider leaving a review for Monster Porn on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute and makes us look oh so good. And subscribe. Thank you. If you're a hardcore Monster like your mom and dad, be sure to check out our new shirts, stickers, and phone cases on our Teespring store. If you're participating in the Summer of Sin and planning on sending us a blasphemy selfie from your local church, worship, or PTA meeting or whatever, use the discount code SummerSin on your order and send your blasphemy selfie to info at monsterpornpodcast.com or tag us on social media. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to follow the Learns Earth webcomic and leave an Apple review to tell Matt he's sexy too. You know, just so he feels better, you don't have to mean it. That's all. Wish us a happy birthday. And until next time, Monster Baiters, stay weird and Godspeed, Strange <laughs> Cowboy. Between the Lord and your wicked, decrepit... Uh, wicked? No, <laughs> wicked.
3: Did I say wicked? You said wicked.
0: The challenge is to take a selfie with either MP merch on full display In an... Either? Why is either in there? I didn't write this part. Matt wrote this part. <laughs> <laughs> Did
1: I write <invent> this part? <laughs>
2: Oh that, that question, oh, that <laughs> oh, that is simply a great question, and I will try to give it away the answer. Oh, that was too Adam Sandler. Oh, that is simply a great question, and I will try to give it away the answer. First of all, I'd like to take you out for a long watch on the beach. Watch on the beach? Watch. I'm, I feel... Keep vigil for
1: those
2: Vikings.
1: <laughs> As stars flickered over her vision and the world glu... Over her vision and the world glu... <laughs> the world glue Turned over her vision in the... <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> god dang it I've got to stop distracting myself I was thinking it would be funny if I read it and I said frickled <laughs> this time
3: <laughs>
1: okay Turned over her vision and the world grew black she threw all of her strength <laughs> the world grew black <laughs> okay one more time Turned over her vision and the world slammed. slam <laughs> <World slam. laughs> apparently i can't say world without following up the next word with an l that's not supposed to be there <laughs> world slam in blackness oh, fuck it super metal <laughs> he groaned and he gripped and he groaned and he gripped he groaned and his grip loosened <laughs> he he groaned and his grip loosened she turned towards the atrium where she'd be. He'd only just become the Bantu. The, the Bantu? Yeah, the, the Bantu. He's a, he's a Banta. What is that? Like a Star Wars thing?
0: That's a Banta. A Banta. A Banta
1: rider. Oh, yeah. A <laughs> That's it's my Banta. worst Chewbacca noise. <laughs> well, let's hear your best. I don't think I can. I don't think I have a best. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Punching him into the calf- Not into the calf. In the calf. (laughs) Jim watched him go as he... (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) What did he do, man? Well, as his fingers continued working on the flayed meat, but I (laughs) almost said he finger-banged the flayed (laughs) meat. (laughs) That's what I thought you were going to (laughs) say. Maybe that's what I should have said. Jim watched him go as he finger banged the blade meat. That's so gross. That would be the worst line I've ever written. Are you getting ready for lunch yet? <laughs> Let's go have some chicken. The head sales lady had a wealthy husband and treated everyone as if they were a s- snuffle Snuffleupagus. Warren didn't think the nickname would pass the HR handbook for being. <laughs> He stepped into dry storage, careful not to step on any of the blood, which he'd have the dishwasher. He stepped into dry storage, careful not to step on any of the blood, which he'd have the dishwasher mop up with the floor. Clean. You're fired. <laughs> I am fired. In <laughs> <And> particular,ly <laughs> he would be thinking about the chili and that wink for the fixed fe- new minutes. Fixed, next few. Nice. I hope that new beef is as good as. Oh, uh, cheap chapstick, yeah! Oh, pencil
3: with an eraser, yeah! Oh, yeah! Come over here, baldy and all the uh, pink tulip, you! Oh, oh yeah, well, uh, I just take you to the uh, the truffle market and pull down your flugelhorn and put two pairs up the old softened cornice and then crank your ingredient in a bottle, baby. You gotta roll me the right way, honey, eh? and then I defrumple your shingle loader. <laughs>